Well, good morning once again. Welcome to Missio Church. My name is Bernie. I'm one of the um, elders here, and it is a, a joy to be able to now, um, as we've just sang about, to look to Jesus and in a sense run to Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the conclusion of that chapter, verses 33 through 47. We're uh, just closing out our series, going passage by passage through the gospel of Mark. Um, Next week, believe it or not, we will uh, conclude the gospel of Mark as we look at Mark chapter 16. So this is our second to last message uh, in this series. Um, And then we will um, be looking at the Psalms for a time this fall and into the spring. Um, But this morning, Mark chapter 15, verses 33 and following. This is God's word. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. When someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed, His last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Would you again just bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we come to you now in the name of your beloved son, Jesus And we ask that by your spirit, you would give us aid now as we seek to understand your word, 
to see um, the glories of Calvary, to see the charms, the delights found in Jesus. So open our minds and our hearts now to your word. May that which is from you take root and bring forth fruit for your honor and glory that you may be all in all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ammonium carbate, carbonate. I'm not sure if it's something you've ever uh, heard of, but perhaps you're familiar with one of its uses, smelling salts. One, uh, one journalist uh, describes the effect of these little packets that you place under your nose in this way. He said, the ammonia fumes pack such a rancid punch. Imagine military-grade concentrations of Windex, wasabi, and Vicks VapoRub that get t-shirt cannoned up both nostrils, that most users instinctively snap their heads back to escape the stench. Now, the aim of of, uh, opening up one of these little packets and putting it under your nose is to uh, kind of arouse and heighten your consciousness, Um, sometimes for those who have passed out, fainted, um, other times for those, uh, particularly in sports, who have been the recipients of brutal blows or are undergoing serious fatigue. Um, They were used for a long time in boxing. They're completely outlawed now, thinking somebody maybe shouldn't be very aware if they've received uh, repeated head blows. But I think they still use them in the NFL, and you'll see players after a brutal hit where they get their bell rung or uh, they're ready to go back out on the field. They will open one of these packets, and you will see them uh, just shudder uh, from the experience of having one of these smelling salts um, assault their senses and their, uh, their passageways. And the crucifixion passage that Levi talked about last week involved the, the beating, the mocking, and uh, the, the actual crucifixion, the actual hanging of Jesus, and the apparent, his apparent defeat as he was hung between two criminals on uh, a cross. And it seemed to signal the death of Jesus, not only his person, but, but the, the defeat of his mission, why he came. But the descriptions we read in the passage we're looking at this morning, this, this closing passage, uh, the things Mark chooses to highlight of all the things he could have included here, the, the portrait he paints of, of the scene surrounding the crucifixion is, is meant to be a, a sort of smelling salts to, to clear the cobwebs out of the reader's head, out of, out of those who listen to him, uh, to clear their sentences, senses and to raise their awareness, to open their eyes to actually see what's going on. Because Mark's readers, if you think about it, they've taken some, they've taken some brutal headshots, much like a, a boxer would have, some, some bone-crushing hits, having their expectations of Jesus smashed as they, they literally saw him crucified. I mean, this is their king, but now he seems helpless. And so Mark wants to break open the smelling salts so that they can have clarity in understanding what was happening 
in this moment so that they can have clarity and see who Jesus actually was despite having all this hurt and this disappointment that's just weighing down on him. So the Spirit of God includes these descriptions as a smelling salt for us so that we have clarity to understand the death of Jesus, to fix our mind on the truths of salvation, to, to see, as we just sang, the glories of Calvary. And in our, in our uh, passage, Mark records the, the, the last moments and the circumstances surrounding those last moments of, of Jesus' life. And he does so first by noting, look at verse 33 with me, when the sixth hour had come, so it's, it's noon, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, Mark isn't recording this because he's a science buff or he's into like just observing scientific abnormalities. Um, he isn't passing along to us like, huh, that's an interesting coincidence. Like this isn't some solemn coincidence he's intending to communicate to us. He's recording this darkness that lasted for three hours in the middle of the day to show that the death of Jesus involved the judgment of God on human rebellion. And we all need to understand this. Jesus' death was God's judgment on sin. Jesus' death was God's actual judgment, punishment for sin. So, the question may be, why do I say that this darkness is a, a sign, a signal of God's judgment? Well, for those of you who know the Old Testament, uh, maybe you just need to be reminded, there's a story in the Old Testament book of Exodus um, when the people of God were held captive, slaves to Pharaoh, the, uh, the tyrant ruler of Egypt. And, and God wanted his people released, and he kept confronting Pharaoh and saying, let my people go, but Pharaoh kept refusing, and so God brought judgments upon Pharaoh. And the ninth plague, the penultimate plague, was an unnatural darkness that lasted for three days over Egypt. When there should have been light, there was only darkness. It was God's judgment on them for sin and rebellion. Beyond that, the prophet, the prophet Amos um, foretold this moment. Amos chapter 8 verse 9 says, that, says this, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the, the earth in broad daylight. You see, this isn't some eclipse or some abnormal scientific thing. This darkness was a messenger of God's wrath. The, the darkness is a smelling salt to raise our, be, our awareness beyond what we can see in the moment. Jesus' crucifixion was God's justice handed down on lawbreakers. The cross was God's sentence on idolaters. The execution of Jesus was God's anger poured out on those who refused to cherish God and love their neighbor. 
Jesus' death was God's judgment on sin. And so what the crucifixion teaches us is that salvation is actually salvation from God. So when we say we are saved, guess what? We are saved from God, from his wrath and his anger and his, his rightful justice. Salvation is salvation from God. Jesus' death does not save us from ourselves. The, the cross isn't primarily intended to, to remedy our weaknesses or to free us from our, our personal demons. Nor is, is Jesus' death primarily salvation from the devil. We, we certainly have been deceived and duped by the enemy. But, but in spite of the lies of Satan, he has no claims on us. Neither is salvation primarily, as we so often say, salvation from sin, as though sin were going to do something to us. Oh, that's not altogether untrue. The Bible does talk about it in those terms. Jesus' death saves us from God because as a just judge, he punishes sin and rebellion. He punishes crimes. He does not let sin go unanswered. So know this, in the death of Jesus, we are saved from God. We are saved from his justice. We are saved from his wrath. And this isn't some new thing. Christians have long recognized this. There's an old, old hymn called Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. One of my favorites. But it, it, there's one line that says, it's, it says, many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. None, none would get involved to try to save him. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. In other words, the, the thing that, that killed Jesus was not some Jewish authorities or some Roman soldiers. It was capital J, justice. It was the just one. God, the Father, poured out his wrath on Jesus. The ultimate wound was not some, some military cohort that that forcibly hung Jesus on a cross. The ultimate wound was the Father's judgment. Jesus' death was God's judgment on sin. We are saved from God if we are saved. Notice Jesus' response to uh, this wrath, this judgment, this, this justice being poured out. Look at verse 34. And at the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, some of the people gathered around this, the spectacle here completely misunderstand Jesus. They think he is actually crawling, calling out for Eli, Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, who in the Judaism of Jesus' day was expected that, um, that there would be moments when he would return and give aid and bring rescue to righteous people who were in need. 
And so it makes sense if there were onlookers who had followed the ministry of Jesus and had high regard for Jesus and considered him righteous that they would think it makes sense that Elijah might rescue this one because he is righteous in and he's hanging on a cross, which in the Old Testament is a sign of God's curse. So if Elijah's gonna save someone, it's gotta be Jesus, right? And so they think he's calling for Jesus. And so in order for, for, uh, to keep his life, uh, to keep him afloat, so to speak, to keep him alive, they, they get the idea, we'll give him some sour wine. Verse 36, they go get some sour wine and they give it to Jesus. This, uh, this wine vinegar is different than the, the wine that was offered to him earlier. It was a, a drink known as Pascha. It was often drunk by um, Roman soldiers who uh, worked endless hours and basically it is a stimulant. Think of like a really bad cup of coffee with extra shots of espresso. That's what they are proposing to give to Jesus just to keep him alert, to keep him alive until Elijah can come. But, but Jesus wasn't requesting Elijah's presence. He was lamenting his father's rejection and desertion in this moment. And the question is, why did God abandon his son? His, as it's described twice by, by the father's own words, twice in this book, first at his baptism, then at the transfiguration. Why would God abandon his only beloved son? Why would God desert that beloved son? And the reason is because Jesus' death was a substitutionary act in which Jesus was forsaken by God the Father for the sins of those who would trust in Jesus. That's why God abandoned Jesus in that moment because he he was forsaken in this moment because he identified with rebel sinners. He carried the guilt and the pollution and, and the uncleanness of sinners. He took the sins of his people and he suffered for it in that moment. So when the father looked at his son, he saw a corrupt, vile sinner. Not the spotless lamb of God. So he turns away and forsakes this beloved one. And here's what we need to do. If sin, here's what we need to know. If, if sin does one thing, it separates us from a holy God. We might think of sin in, in all sorts of different terms. Ah, it's not that. Sin separates you from the holy creator king. One commentator writes, in this moment, Jesus is entering temporarily into the state of God-forsakenness from which sinful humanity, you and me, needs to be rescued. Jesus is entering into that God-forsakenness from which you and I need to be rescued. And so know this, if you have not been united to Christ by faith, you are in a state of God-forsakenness. 
God does not look on you kindly. If Jesus, God's beloved son, the only begotten son with whom the father was well pleased, if he was abandoned for taking our sinfulness, know this, that you have absolutely no hope apart from Jesus. So what Mark teaches us, in addition to the fact that salvation is salvation from God, is that, in fact, salvation is salvation by God. Because Jesus hung on the cross as a substitute, as a forsaken substitute for sinners, for those who would place their hope in him. We are saved by God. He identified with our sinfulness. He took our uncleanness. He bore our rebellion so that we might be rescued from God's anger, from his rightful, just punishment. So Jesus' death was a a substitutionary act in which Jesus identified with and took the sinfulness of his people and in the process was forsaken by God so that we might be saved. We are saved from God and we are saved by God in the person of Christ. Do you think, I wonder what our conception of of sin is. Do you think of of your sin as, eh, it's just kind of some some little flaws, some, some personal imperfections. And yeah, I mean, they're regrettable. They're, they're not nice, not really pretty. They're kind of ugly, but they're not a huge deal, right? And if, and if that's your conception of sin, I say this lovingly, you could not be more deceived. God's just punishment is directed towards those who rebel against his his gracious and his rightful rule. So great is the debt that's owed that he offered up his only beloved son. And so we would do well to acknowledge the weight, the gravity of our sin and trust in the one who gave his life as a ransom in the place of those who would trust in him to take our punishment. That old hymn I mentioned, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, captures this idea so well, the, the gravity of sin. It says, you who think of sin but lightly, it's no, it's no big deal, that's what you think, nor suppose the evil great at the cross, here, may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. That's the seriousness of sin that our Lord hung on the cross in our place to deliver us from God's wrath. 
So at the cross, God's wrath is evidence. He, he abandons his own son because of our sin, my sin, laid on his shoulders. But notice what happened upon Jesus' death. Look at verse 38 with me. Verse 37 says this, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, uh, at this time, this temple, the second temple, there were um, two curtains in the temple that restricted access and restricted visibility of the temple. Um, Only priests could go beyond those curtains. Only priests could uh, enter in past those places. Only they could go in and directly minister to in and before the the presence of the Lord beyond these curtains. So these curtains were barriers. They limited access to God, and they reserved service and worship to God for the people who could go behind these curtains, right? So think of it this way, just as by way of analogy. The temple behind these two curtains is essentially the, the ancient Jewish Area 51, right? It seems strange. Most of us know Area 51, desert place out in Nevada. Some people think the government's hiding all the aliens there. Regardless of what the government's doing, they're doing some top secret stuff there. No one, unless you are credentialed, no one goes in and and sees what's happening in Area 51. In fact, there are signs around the perimeter. There's there's no fences. Like, I guess physically, if you tried to walk on, you could make it some ways. But there are signs around the perimeter of of Area 51 that say that, um, uh, talk about the harsh treatment for trespassing, including the authorization of deadly force. Right? So, you want to go to Area 51 and protest? Cool. You might walk a tenth of a mile, and that may be it. Because this is, this is restricted. You may not go there. Unless you are credentialed by the U.S. government, you ain't stepping foot in Area 51. But, but those signs that, that say, you know, Death, upon penalty of death, in Jesus' death, those foreboding signs were all ripped down around the temple. Where there was restricted access, now it wasn't, you didn't just go to this place to serve and worship God. The service and worship of God was expanded beyond this little location in Israel. The, the, the tearing of the curtain was, was what some people call a divine act of vandalism and judgment on a, a corrupt system of service and worship. No longer would the worship of God be contained to that place by those priests. So here's what we learn. Jesus' death opened up the priestly service of God. It wasn't uh, uh, just, uh, just a signal few 
who had credentials and access to serve God. God was doing away with this limited credentialing process. He was tearing down the upon penalty of death signs. He was saying all who come in Christ may approach God. Jesus has opened the way. We are, we are bought by Christ and we're granted priestly access. We all have their credentials now. If we're in Christ, you've been credentialed. It opens up fellowship and service with God. So what this does is it shows us that Christ's death shows us that salvation is salvation for God. We are saved for God. We're saved from God. We are saved by God. And we are saved for God. We're not saved to pursue our own selfish pleasures. God didn't save us from his wrath so that we could simply live a a worry-free life, a a charmed life, a, a life of pleasure and prosperity. Christ hung on the cross that that now we, as his people, might now go and represent him, mediating his presence to the world. We were bought with a price, therefore we glorify God with our bodies and with our lives. We are saved for God. That's what salvation is for. It doesn't terminate on us. We now get to uh, join in bringing God glory. And I know some of you may have said a prayer at some moment in your life, at a, at a church meeting, at a camp meeting, at a camp when you were a kid, because you heard about God's punishment. And well, who likes punishment? Like, none of us like punishment, right? You wanted to avoid that. But if you're honest, God's not someone you really regard as worthy of your attention and your time and your energies and your affections. He's just not. You don't really like him that much. Know this. Know those who are saved are saved for a purpose. We are saved for God, to serve him, to serve others, to make his name known in in our homes, in our neighborhood, in, in the near west side, in the Park Ave neighborhood. Perhaps some of us need to submit our lives to that day, commit our lives to that. We are saved for God. So we've seen thus far in Mark's account that uh, when he snaps the smelling salt and, and we see just a crucified, bloody Jesus, what we see is that we're saved from God and we're saved by God and we're saved for God. But, but there's more to the story here. Notice the centurion. He's the one, um, kind of humanly speaking, that's responsible for the cru- crucifixion and he's been witnessing all that's been happening. He's seen the crowds gathered around Jesus. He's heard the criminals mock. He's seen the darkness, probably looking around, wondering what is going on. He's heard Jesus' cry of forsakenness. He saw how Jesus breathed his last And look at what it says in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, 
he said, truly this man was the son of God. And this is remarkable because here you have a a non-Jewish, non-religious, rough-hardened military thug, and he is the literally the first human in the book of Mark to get Jesus. He gets Jesus. The first the first verse of the book of Mark is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what Mark wants us to understand. That's what he wants people to understand. And and here, this this guy who shouldn't get it, he gets it. And so what we see is that we understand Jesus' identity at the cross. Jesus' death reveals his identity. He is the suffering servant, the suffering son of God. But we've we've got to be realistic and say that's not immediately obvious to everyone standing at the foot of the cross, right? It's not apparent that, that a man who, I mean, he looks torn up. He is he is bleeding everywhere. He is suffering. He is laboring to breathe. It's not apparent that this dying man is worthy of worship and, and obedience and the surrender of, of one's life. But it's, it's, it's not perceived via the scientific method, right? You don't look at, at this man and say, yep, definitely the son of God. And, and from this we learn something further about salvation is that we are saved through faith. We are rescued through trust as the Spirit of God reveals the person of Jesus to us, as he reveals his true identity to us. We're rescued as we place our hope and our faith in the one who suffered at God's hands for those who actually merited God's punishment. Jesus' death reveals his true identity. We are saved from God, by God, for God, through faith. Moving the focus from Jesus, Mark kind of pans out to the, sur- the scenes surrounding the cross, and he identifies some women who have gathered around the cross. Look at verse 40 with me. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, Joseph and Salome. So what Mark wants us to understand is that these women weren't bystanders with a, a morbid curiosity. They weren't into crucifixions. Mark tells us that, oddly enough, these people are insiders with Jesus. They're close to Jesus. They've followed Jesus all along, although we haven't seen them in the gospel. They've actually served Jesus. They've helped his ministry. They've supported it. They're disciples. And notice that the disciples are nowhere to be found here. It's the women. Most unlikely to be seen here. Faithful disciples. And Mark's inclusion of these details is curious because it's not necessarily something you'd want to showcase to an ancient audience, right? Like, uh, 
Women weren't the group of backers that, like, it's great if they're in your corner, but it, it really isn't holding water with too many people. You're, you're, not, you're not gaining confidence by saying, but, but these women saw it. They witnessed it. If you're going to fabricate a story, you're not going to include as witnesses those who are easily minimized and depreciated, despised, looked down upon. If you're going to create a story about Jesus' death and then, as we'll see next week, his resurrection, um, you're not going to include women because they add no credibility to your claim. And that's important because in addition, Mark then emphasizes the frantic activity of somebody else in this passage. Again, another very unlikely uh, person to be in the corner of the now crucified Son of God. Look at verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, respected member of the council. That's the Sanhedrin. Remember, they're the guys that the night before had voted Guilty of blasphemy, death, yes. Joseph is a part of these guys. Who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus came preaching and teaching. That's what he embodied. Took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Asking for the body of of an executed criminal is not something just anybody does. Only a family member would would dare do that because he is risking just social ostracism. He's he's risking just being outed and and being uh, despised and and put up as an outsider to uh, the religious uh, standard of the day. He's risking a lot by going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus. And not only that, when he goes to Pilate and says, hey, I want to bury Jesus, Pilate can't believe that Jesus is actually dead. And so he stalls the whole process. Now, what's interesting is that Joseph, he's a religious leader, and and they have one of the the biggest uh, religious celebrations happening the next day. He can't be caught touching a dead body after a certain time. This, is, this has to be a timely matter. And Pilate says, maybe, but I got to check with the Roman centurion because there's no way this guy's dead yet. I know how, off, how long it takes for, for criminals to die on a cross, and, and Jesus should not be dead yet. Mark tells us he goes, he checks with the centurion, the centurion comes back, he is dead. Joseph quickly goes, he buys a, a shroud to wrap Jesus's and puts him in the tomb. And then verse 47 says this, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This isn't how you make a case for a lie you want others to believe. The leaders of the early church were absent, embarrassingly absent. And there was no doubt that Jesus wasn't merely unconscious or unconscious or half dead. Jesus was dead. He was a, as the text says, a corpse. Women witness it. Nobody would lie and make up this version of the event. And that's the point. Jesus' death 
was a historical reality. And the historical reality of Jesus' death shows us that we are saved from a holy, just God. By God. In our substitute, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. For God to represent his name in the world. Through faith, apart from anything we could offer. God saves us from his wrath for his purposes as we look to Jesus, the forsaken substitute, in faith. May we all look to Jesus in faith and see the 10,000 charms, the 10,000 delights, the, the blessings of God in Christ today. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray that by your Spirit right now in this moment, you would grant us, every one of us in this room, to recognize and be convinced of your holiness and your justice. You are a righteous king. Convince us of our sin and our rebellion and our unworthiness to be, um, to be accepted and embraced by you. Show us the, the weight and the sinfulness of sin. Show us and cause us to rejoice in your son Jesus who was forsaken for the sake of we who trust in him. And now set us apart and empower us for service out of gratitude for the grace and mercy we find in our Savior, Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that that right now you would grant some faith, awaken them, raise them to new life, give them new hearts. And God, I pray that by your spirit, those who you have raised to new life, that you would grant faithfulness, strengthen them for their service as we all keep our eyes on the glories of Calvary. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.